namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This next talk from uh, Don't Take Your Life Personally was given on the 3rd of August, 2001. It's called Welcoming Everything. Notice that having breakfast and talking stimulates and stirs up the mind. So now is the opportunity to observe this. Just notice it without trying to do anything about it. Witness this sense of having eaten breakfast, having talked to people, and the result is like this. You're noticing the way it is. It's not a matter of approving or disapproving of anything, but of just noticing this awakened state where there is awareness. And it is intelligent. It knows the way it is. There are no comments about it in terms of how it should or shouldn't be. It's just noticing that this is the way it is. So there is this attitude of welcoming rather than of being caught up in a habit pattern of trying to control or get rid of or trying to attain some particular mental state. People sometimes want to recreate blissful samadhi experiences they remember having had on past retreats. They try to make them happen again by attempting to suppress thought or control things. The point is, awareness includes everything. So it isn't a matter of thinking you should uh, that you shouldn't desire anything that you should just sit there and not have any desires that would be coming from an ideal again an ideal of how things should be so in awareness we're not operating from comparing the reality of this moment with an ideal but rather of accepting and welcoming the way it is even if we don't like the way it is it isn't a matter of liking but of learning to welcome even what we don't like and don't want Years ago, I developed a welcoming practice. This is because I'm someone who finds welcoming, particularly in the case of certain mental states, very difficult. There are states that I don't like and habitually reject. I have this sense of just pushing them away, just doing this to life, kind of pushing them away. This was my, what would you call it, approach to life? Anyway, my approach was to not let it approach. Leave me alone. So then this sense of welcoming occurred to me as a way of remembering not to reject mental states. It wasn't that I had intended to reject them when they came. It was just force of habit. So then the intention was to welcome even what I didn't like or didn't want. Those unpleasant mental states, those difficult situations. In the Theravada tradition we have this word metta, loving kindness. And metta is about welcoming everything. There is nothing divisive or critical in metta. When you develop metta, therefore, it's towards everything in the universe. You have metta for the devils, the demons, the angels, the enemy, the friends, the mosquitoes, flies, germs, birds, the precious little kittens and the beloved doggies, everything. There's no preference. It's not a question of saying, 
I want 90% of meta to go to this person and about 1.1% to go to the demons. You're not being picky about it. It's welcoming conditioned phenomena totally. The whole range from heaven to hell. From the best to the worst. So, um, uh, one of the ways that um, uh, I was talking about uh, this uh, a few readings ago was how when uh, Lumpur Sumato first came to uh, to England in the mid-70s and he was uh, living in the Hampstead Vihara and was teaching there that uh, he used the standard ways of describing meta-meditation um, that you find in the scriptures and also in, in Buddhist meditation practices in Asia where you would um, recite the words may I uh, so, uh, uh, may I abide in well-being um, May I be, may I be well. May I be happy, and may all, uh, may other beings be well. May they be happy, and so on and so forth. And uh, all the practices of metta of radiating this this um, sentiment of well wishing uh, uh, from where you're sitting, uh, where you're situated in a geographically spreading it around the people near you, the people further away, the people in the village, the towns, the area, and around over the, the whole country and around the world. Or another method would be to, first of all, radiate that feeling of kindness and well-wishing to the people that you like and then the people that you're, you're indifferent to and the, the people that you, are, that you have um, conflict with or, and then to all beings, um, uh, uh, no-legged, many-legged, two-legged, four-legged, winged birds, uh, uh, insects, uh, creatures in the water and so on and so forth. And so that there, this kind of style of meta, meta meditation was very, which is very standard, is still um, very, very widespread. Then, uh, when he came to England, he was teaching in that way with this uh, uh, method of bringing to mind, "May I be happy? May all beings be happy." And that uh, he found that when he start, when he talked in that way, that many of the people that he was talking to had a ne very negative reaction. They felt it was really sentimental and kind of cheesy, as they say. Kind of, uh, this it was too sort of superficial. Like uh, as uh, 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 he would uh, uh, describe it, there was a movement in America called called uh, to uh, to think pink, which is to put a positive coat uh, on on everything, or a kind of bright, a cheerful coating on everything. And he found that particularly for the the uh, the people he was speak, uh, teaching in London, the the Brits that were gathered around and. Uh, and sort of listening to his teachings, that that approach to meta was uh, uh, had a counter counterproductive effect. It made people more irritated and annoyed. Oh dear, please, Tarjan, stop it! So nauseating, like a endless Walt Disney film. <laughs> this kind of nasty uh, sentimental uh, projection. So anyway, he, uh, as I was saying the other day, then he he began to reflect on that and approach the teaching of metta in a very different way. So he began to talk about not dwelling in aversion. That was a phrase he would use over and over again. So metta is not about trying to like everything or, uh, or, or pretend that the things that are bitter or difficult or painful are things that you, you like or that you want them to be that way or, or that you approve of them, but rather that they are part of the natural order. So that he would use this phrase, not dwelling in aversion. So... Um, uh, and this uh, expression he's using here about welcoming, welcoming everything, is, uh, like say, an extension of that, and particularly not just in terms of 
other beings, different people, or different um, situations, but uh, in particular to your mind states, so that he would often speak more about metta in terms of having loving kindness for your feelings of anger or jealousy or fear or lust or, or um, agitation, anxiety, having metta for those painful mind states, um, again, not by uh, uh, trying to paste them out, uh, uh, a layer of positivity over them, like sort of spraying them with pink paint and saying, oh, I love my anger, my anger is a wonderful thing, or I'm so happy that I feel such jealousy. This is really a great <laughs> blessing to the world that I'm jealous of everyone. And You're not kind of making this sort of stupid, um, superficial uh, plastering over, or, you know, spraying everything with a pink veneer, but rather that quality of, uh, of acceptance, that welcoming and saying, oh, okay, here is a feeling of jealousy again. But it belongs. It's part of the natural order. It's a uh, it's a, a shift of attitude, so that there is a um, a sense of of uh, uh, acceptance, uh, even for the things that are unlikable, that are not wholesome, not beautiful, not noble, um, but they are part of the natural order. So violence, selfishness, greediness, laziness, all these. Even just saying the words, you kind of feel Ooh. we don't even like to hear the words. I don't even like to say them. You know. But uh, they are part of the natural order. Violence is part of the, the natural order. Selfishness is part of the natural order. And if the mind, if the mind um, judges those and rejects those, uh, or tries to sort of force them away and, and replace them with something positive, that very pushing away can make them far stronger and make them more solid and, and real, have a, have, a, have a bigger impact. And so Lumpur uh, Sumedho saw for himself that there was a, a tremendous benefit in that quality of recognizing you know, these angry feelings, these jealous feelings, they, they belong. And then by listening to them, receiving them, knowing them with clarity, then they would, mis- then uh, um, being sort of dominant forces in the mind, rather than like, go away, you know, I don't want you here, you don't, uh, you don't belong, get out of here, you're dangerous, you're awful, you're terrible. And then they'd be sort of lingering outside the door. Say, oh, please, come in, make, make yourself at home. <laughs> this is the- what can I do? Can I offer you some tea or something? And then um, that would have a, 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 a transformative psychological effect. So what is the effect on your mind when you start developing this attitude of loving-kindness, metta? It counterbalances your critical tendencies, doesn't it? Your critical mind excludes things. This is better than that. This is how it should be, not that. This person I approve of, but this one I don't. There shouldn't be these evil people. There shouldn't be criminals. There shouldn't be paedophiles. There shouldn't be this. There should only be that. You can get caught up in personal preferences and weighing one thing against the other. But metta is not critical and it's not idealistic. It's not generating a loving quality towards everything in the sense of liking or approving of it. Liking depends on conditions having to be such that you like them. Metta is more like unconditional love. It is this welcoming, a kind of generosity, an uncritical acceptance of the whole range of phenomena in whatever form it takes. As many of you know, we develop metta beginning with ourselves. The formula we use is something like, may I abide in well-being. So the first part of the practice is always directed towards yourself, just learning to accept yourself for what you are. 
That means welcoming and accepting everything about yourself. Your dark side, your good side, your bright side, your stupid side, your evil side, whatever. Learning to accept uncritically even the things you really don't like about yourself. And this I found most difficult. My critical faculties are not all that rampant when turned outwards, but they get to go into a tirade. It's like a kind of ranting, um, sort of uh, shouting criticism. They go into a tirade when turned inward. I'm much more critical of myself than of anyone else. So, may I abide in well-being is a reminder of wishing well to this being here. This condition, this human body, this person, this habits and emotions, whatever they are, rather than endlessly thinking that you have to get rid of things because you shouldn't be this way, you shouldn't feel like this, there's a sense of welcoming, even something very unpleasant. So metta allows all things because they belong. Everything belongs in this moment because it's here. It's like this. If I come along and say, this shouldn't be here, that's my personal sense of not wanting something. The reality of the moment, however, is that because it's here, it belongs. So one of the ways that I like to, to think of, uh, talk about metta then is that it has both a, an expressive or an outgoing uh, quality and then a receptive quality, just like the breath. We have the in-breath and the out-breath. So I feel that it's a good way to understand metta uh, as um, having these two different dimensions, the, the, the well-wishing, the sending, the, the, um, the, the sense of sentiment or positive, uh, uh, say, uh, attitudes towards others or you know say towards uh, towards yourself may i be well may i be happy may i be at ease and so on so that outgoing when i say outgoing can, that can also be outgoing towards yourself if that makes sense so that may i be happy may i be well may i be at ease and so that then that's a, a kind of a positive thought that's generated an emotion that's generated direct uh, sent out in a particular direction but the other side the the in-breath side if you like is this everything belongs. It's an open-heartedness. Like, and exactly as Lumpur says here, um, whether I like it or not, <clears throat> the reality of the moment, however, however, is that because it's here, it belongs. So it's like saying everything in the universe, it, uh, it is this way, and therefore it belongs. This is part of the way it is right now. And so that sense of, of uh, belonging and uh, the, the way that the heart is open to that in a sense, it's attuning the heart to the fundamental reality of things in the present moment, so that it is this way. So that, in a sense, is uh, it's helping the heart to be in tune with the present reality. And so that, uh, just like with the breath, the in-breath, I would say, is more important than the out-breath, because the in-breath is what brings the oxygen in, that's what keeps the body alive. I would say that in terms of metta, it's the, the quality of acceptance is the real life force. That's the, that's the, the main power source of loving kindness is that open-hearted acceptance and from that basis of acceptance then the the kind of the outgoing side the expressive side arises from that yes And with it, this sense of acceptance as well of mind states that are impersonal and or emotions that become impersonal like that. And how do you see that radiating metaphor being, you know, animals, humans, 
that somehow creates the same openness to something very impersonal as this emotion state and, and, and how one can kind of activate the other or not. Well, they, they're, they're, they're related to each other so that um, just rousing that uh, intention to have a positive thought towards other beings that you hadn't even thought about. You know, the, uh, maybe you live here at Umbravati and you don't think about the people in Nettledon or Berkhamstead or Hammerhampstead or Aylesbury or Lake Buzzard. And, and just bringing those people to mind and go, oh, yeah, there's people in Hemel. Oh, yeah, there's people in Luton and Aylesbury. Oh, my goodness, yes. And so that sense of just bringing um, other beings to mind and then with the intention of having a, a positive thought or positive or friendly attitudes towards them, that's going to have some kind of a ripple effect. But every every person is different. Every particular way that the mind handles um, the, or is affected by these kind of practices is going to be different. So for some people, that kind of meta way where you go through the, the sort of lists of beings or geographically spreading it, rather than being irritating or rousing the kind of inner cynic, like, oh, this is annoying. Actually, they, they come out of it like, wow, this is amazing. This is wonderful. And... Uh, I remember years ago I was on a retreat. Ajahn Anando, the Nando the first, the American Anando, was leading a retreat up in the north of England, and I was a attendant <coughs> monk. And we had this Anagarika with us, Anagarika Corky, it was called, and um, he was a very energetic guy and was always kind of doing things. And anyway, uh, Ajahn Anando was, and I was sort of sitting in his room having a cup of tea, and then suddenly the door kind of flew open, and Corky came in with his eyes blazing and said, "I've just been doing meta." You know, and <laughs> so my my first question was, were there any survivors? <laughs> it's like, but he was just a kind of completely alight with this, you know, wow, you know. So that had a very and Ajahn Ananda had been teaching that kind of, of spreading loving kindness in that very sort of systematic, um, that kind of way, and not speaking in terms of acceptance, but all the kind of radiating. So these things is. As with every aspect of Dhamma practice, I feel it's useful to experiment and see see what works uh, for, for you in in uh, in the sort of makeup of the kind of the thinking patterns, emotional patterns, uh, and so forth that are there. And what you what what works is the, is always the right thing. So for this uh, with this particular um, point that Lumpur is making here about how he said, I'm much more critical of myself than of anyone else. And he said that many, many, hundreds of times. He said, you know, nobody has been as nasty to me as I have been to myself. A lot of people have been critical of me over the years, but no one, no one has ever got close to being as critical of me as I am. (laughs) So that uh, one of the practices that, um, if people do have a lot of self-criticism, then one of the practices that I like to encourage, if say that your name is Nidaro, Tim, if, you are, if, if your name is Tim, use you as a random example, Tim. So if if Tim has a lot of negativity towards Tim, um, so then then you realise that you that you're quite kind and friendly to other people and uh, other beings, and you're uh, but yet to yourself you're really kind of negative and full of aversion. Then a simple practice to do is just to uh, to do a little sort of it's a kind of a mind uh, mind game as a Tim was your friend rather than you, and that uh, and I often walk people through this. I say, okay, if if Tim was your friend, would you be so uh, unforgiving and harsh on him? Yeah, 
if Tim came to you and said, I'm such a terrible person because, you know, I wanted to, to uh, I was supposed to be on the washing up, but I kind of found an excuse to get away before it was really finished. And I, I, I'm really, I'm not reading anybody's mind. <laughs> I, I'm sure you would never do such a thing. But uh, I really hate myself. I'm such an awful person. You know, I, I can't live with myself. I've got to leave the winter retreat support team because I'm such a kind of, I'm a blight on the whole group. I'm, I'm a kind of causing sort of far more negative energy than, than, uh, than is really helpful. <coughs> and <clears throat> so I'd say, well, if your friend Tim came to you and said, I'm such a terrible person, I'm so awful, I wanted to get away from, from the washing up before it was completed, and so therefore I should, I should be exiled, you know, punished. Uh, if your friend Tim came to you and said that, what's your first thought in relationship to that? It's immediately it's forgiveness and compassion. Like, it's, it's not that bad. You know, I was doing the same thing yesterday. <laughs> and you know, so that immediately, uh, and I, I've been doing this practice or suggesting this practice for probably 25 years with people. And every time you do it, then it's it's got a sort of 100% success rate. It's kind of amazing that regardless of how intense someone's negativity is, if they follow that little mind game through, say if your, if your friend you know, Tim or Evgenia or Eleonora or Nidaro or Mickey you know, came to you, yes? <laughs> yeah, another random example. So if she, if she came to you and said, I'm so terrible, I'm so awful, uh, I'm, what I've done is unforgivable, then if you notice, what's the first thing in your heart is forgiveness, compassion, kindness, every time. And so... That's a clue <laughs> that this this being here. Why why is this being singled out for punishment or being treated badly or harshly or negatively? So, uh, what a simple practice when you, when your mind is caught into those negative, self-critical patterns is to say, you know, if if uh, if I was my friend, would I be so hard to myself? And just not have a big story, but just pop that question into the into the mental field and see what arises and it, it is kind of revealing that <gasps> just straight away there's compassion forgiveness kindness and the, the heart makes space for others Whereas, yeah but you don't know you don't know what i did and i really am awful and, um, and so that then there's something in the heart that recognizes well why should this why should it be so awful in this person when it's quite forgivable in another person and then that's uh, it's not coming from your brain, but really from the, the wisdom of the heart. Yes, David. Yes. Yeah, well, acceptance doesn't mean approval. And so that uh, you, part of... No, you don't. Um, well, it, it can do, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. I mean, that's like what... what in, the, in these teachings that Lumpur Sumedha says over and over again, to say something, to accept something is to say, well, here it is. To approve it is like, I'm glad that it's this way. So, in terms of acceptance, like if you're in a difficult situation and someone's behavior is really uh, uh, inappropriate or harmful, then 
to be able to take any action because it can also mean what you accept is your part of what you accept is your capacity to do something about it and that and letting go say um, you know another word that is often used in terms we'll just let go meaning be passive or just switch off what you can be letting go of is letting go of your hesitancy to do something and so that often I point out that if we if there really is a practicing of letting go non-attachment and acceptance you can find yourselves getting more active more involved and more courageous more ready to to jump in because you're not so sort of self-protective and so I feel that it's a wrong understanding of acceptance or letting go or non-attachment is extremely common within the Buddhist meditational world because of the way those words meanings that those words carry but it's um, acceptance uh, now, and I think Lumpur Sumedho articulates it really really well he keeps saying acceptance doesn't mean approval it means this is what you're working with so that your selfish feelings your angry feelings or someone's behavior someone that you're working with who's really um, can, their, their, uh, their words are really harmful they're really dishonest they're, they're creating all kinds of confusion and, and conflict in the group then then accepting that doesn't mean to say being passive but accept, okay well we've got to do some acceptance can mean we need to do something <laughs> and so that it's it's a way that the, the different ways that those words can be used and so I think it's more important to understand within oneself within the heart to that um, when we talk about acceptance it's attuning the heart to the, the way the world is configured in this moment and then from that attunement then action that it, and speech that is appropriate to whatever is going to be a benefit uh, arises from that attunement yeah so that you can respond to it rather than react what happens is without that kind of attunement when there isn't real sort of mindfulness and wisdom we either switch off and go numb and just like oh it's not my thing you know as they say not my circus not my monkeys switch off you know the and, and just kind of dissociate from it or react like that's outrageous how can she do that that's awful that's terrible and and so we go either go numb or we react so when there's mindfulness and wisdom then there's a response and that response might be say nothing now <coughs> okay now speak up and that uh, that uh, res responsivity uh, Again, the words reacting and responding can they can be you might find them having the same definition in the dictionary, but in terms of Buddhist practice in particular, they're very very different, because to respond is there's a, the the situation is received into the, the the space of the heart, and then there's a there's that weighing up. Okay, this is what's going on. Um, is there something to be done or not to be done? Uh, am I involved? Am I invited to be involved? Is, is someone going to do something here? Uh, okay. And then out of that uh, attuning and that spaciousness, then you, you can take very direct or, 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 or taking sort of responsible action. You can take initiative. And that, but it also it can be that uh, it, it can be from that attunement recognizing there's nothing that can be done here leave it alone uh, and that's the, the kindest thing to do is just to okay this one's out of my hands I could do something I would do something but there's nothing that can be done here okay 
to, you know, to leave it alone. But and that leaving it alone is also the heart is comfortable with that because it's not uh, a leaving it alone because of aversion or fear, but it's recognizing the car's already over the cliff. Okay, Nichiwata Sankara. <laughs> All you can do is watch it go down and hit the rocks because there's there's no action you can take to to pull it back. You just go down and help pick through the wreckage. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a to lean away from that that habit of rejection of like get out of here. I don't want you. You don't belong. It's, it's like seeing seeing that in himself. It's an inclining towards. Um, oh, this is exactly what I didn't want. This is the the the, the worst thing. This is uh, <clears throat> this is just what I was dreading. Okay, <laughs> and to 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 lean into it like. Uh, when uh, I was talking about this last year in the readings, and so that sometimes when I'm sitting here after the meal time or breakfast time, and I've got something I have to go to, or I've been there for a, an hour or two already, and um, I might see some uh, some people uh, new, some new people arriving, or there's like five people stacked up, you know, sort of you know, kind of holding pat and waiting to have come and have a chat. And and I could see that there might be this wave. Oh dear, I got all these people. Oh, I, I need to get away. Or oh, uh, you know, I've had enough of this. And so I uh, uh, I I deliberately changed my attitude because of seeing that uh, what you know that sense of oh, I don't want to bother with this. Or when there would be those waves of of uh, of uh, let's say lack of openness. And so I I uh, I changed my attitude to rather than leave me leave me alone and don't bother. Me, me to pounce here so like pounce here like a cat pouncing on a mouse like so that i'm i'm ready to be pounced on or to be to be uh, to be available so that uh, so at the end of the retreat last year somebody made a sitting cloth for me with pounce here yeah, embroidered into it but it was uh, and i found it was very useful rather than seeing that kind of like oh don't you know leave me alone don't bother me to say well yeah those those thoughts might cross the mind but you don't want that to be a dominant presence it doesn't have to be that way and to just say yes as long as it takes fine no problem and then that uh putting that suggestion into the mix then helps to reach that in the heart that says yeah what else is there to do really where else is there to go <laughs> well, each of us has our own particular disposition. You know, some people will say, "I'll fix this," you know, and kind of go in like a bull in a china shop, and then the wreckage, or <laughs> well, the broken china that follows your good actions. Like, hmm. <laughs> this is a bit of a mess, isn't it? Okay, so and others are like, "Oh dear, a problem," uh, you know, and they they they're out, you know, and. Uh, 
that they're always sort of self-protective and don't want to get involved. And another, another of our, we have a large stock of anagaricas to feature in these stories. So, <laughs> so another anagarica was so um, keen to be sort of self-protective and not get, um, I say, into uh, situations he didn't like. He literally always sat close to the door. <laughs> but he literally would. We would always, whenever he was in a room, he would position himself so he's like, you know, only one or two meters away from the door. And I thought when, uh, and he made a comment about that after he'd been around for a few months. And, that uh, oh yeah, I was sitting at the door, and I thought oh ha 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 ha. And then I realized no, it's not. He's not speaking figuratively. He really does always sit near the door, so that he can get away if. If it's oh, I've had enough of this, you know, and so that that was his uh, his style. So each of us, it's important to to get up, to know our own character. So like in those um, the seven qualities of a good person, the Sapurisa Sutta, then the one of the qualities uh, that is described in that is is um, atanyuta, atta as in self, like anatta, not self, atta, atanyuta is like knowing yourself, knowing your own personality. Are you a Leap in and fix it type, or are you a kind of sick near the door type, or are you, are you a, a ditherer like, oh, I should join in, but I, I really don't want to bother him. What should I, what should I do? You know. So you, you get to know your own character, and it's not like one character is good and another is not good, but each of us has particular patterns of conditioning and particular styles. So we get to know that, and uh, you, you work with those character traits. And so if you realize, okay, if you're, if you never want to to take initiative and you're always kind of shying away and you're afraid of of um, leading anything, okay, then maybe that's something that has to be to be worked on and to to lean into that, to to challenge that, to work with that. Or if you see that you're always ready to lead and <laughs> jump in and take charge, say, okay, maybe I need to learn how to hold back and to to not be so um, kind of. Uh, Ready to, to, to jump in and take charge and to, to let other people lead and so on. And so each of us has a, a particular constellation or group of character traits. So part of meditation and living in community is getting to know what those traits are and what uh, ones cause more, if they're followed, what gives rise to confusion and difficulty and conflict and what brings you know, harmony and benefit. So that you. <laughs> Congratulations, yeah. <laughs> you got the whole set. <laughs> well, at least to, to know that, that okay, that's that, that's there is that array of different of different uh, characters in the mix. Okay, so that's what you you get to know and you 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 uh you to learn how to work with that. You know, and then you, you, because you can't just snap your fingers and be different. Like I was saying the other day, how you know, many of us have this feeling of if only I was somebody else, I would be happy. If only I wasn't me, everything would be great. I said I thought that for years and years and years. If only I wasn't me, anybody else would be great. Uh, and so that getting to know the the particular patterns of one character, of one's character, and learning to work with that, and then put it to work, and as uh, as in with the um, uh, the time-honored um, principle of building is if you can't hide it, make a feature of it. So if there's a character trait that's really strong, 
and you think, okay, well, that's not going to go away. Okay, well, if I can't, if I, if I can't sort of get over it, or it's always going to be there, well, I might as well put it to work, make it, make it, uh, do a and do a good job uh, by uh, say taking advantage of it rather than feeling like it shouldn't be there. And if only it wasn't that way, then everything would be great. Okay, so to continue. So, may I abide in well-being is a reminder of wishing well to this being here, this condition, this human body, this person with its habits and emotions, whatever they are. Rather than endlessly thinking that you have to get rid of things because you shouldn't be this way, you shouldn't feel like this, there's a sense of welcoming, even something very unpleasant. So metta allows all things because they belong. Everything belongs in this moment because it's here. It's like this. If I come along and say, this shouldn't be here, that's my personal sense of not wanting something. The reality of the moment, however, is that because it's here, it belongs. One thing I found when living in Asia was this sense of belonging. Even though I'm obvious, obvious, uh, sorry, even though I am an obvious foreigner, this used to baffle me. I've lived in India, Malaysia and Thailand, and in all those countries I have felt at home. I always felt as though I belonged. Yet, in many ways, I didn't. There I was, a big white man living in a forest monastery with all these small Thai monks. I looked out of place, an anachronism, a foreigner in terms of appearance. On the emotional level, however, I always felt at home and began to, to recognize that one thing many of us like about uh, the Asians is that they have this sense of everything belonging. Lepers, mad people, the beautiful, the ugly, the rich, the poor, the high caste, the low, whoever. The Asians seem to have this total acceptance of it all, that anyone has just as much right to be there as anyone else. That because you are there, you belong. Metta, then, is the sense of being at home, of allowing, of accepting, and being patient with what you don't like and don't want. Of allowing what you find irritating, disgusting and revolting. Whatever. It's a question of learning not to get lost in reactions, but rather to be patient and accepting, to welcome even the dark side of your experience. That takes patience, doesn't it? For me at least it does, because emotionally I'm conditioned to trying to push things away, trying to get rid of them. Patient acceptance is also about welcoming the good side, but in a way that does not demand it. When happiness is present, welcome it, allow it to arise, but also allow it to cease. To be able to do this takes attentiveness, takes this buddho, this still point, this sense of pure presence which includes all that is right now. I was talking to someone this morning about grief. This, of course, is an emotion we all experience. In the West, however, we don't seem to know how to deal with it, often looking on it as an indulgence, a kind of making a lot out of nothing, quote-unquote. We can think we are being quite rational by dismissing feelings of grief. I see this in other people, and I can also see it in myself. Before I ever practiced meditation, my tendency was to dismiss grief whenever it came up in my life. I felt it was more noble to say, oh, just get on with life, don't make a scene. That seemed more noble than just sitting around crying and weeping and making everybody feel terrible. Just get on with life. 
That, of course, is an ideal and might seem noble, but at the same time, it isn't respecting what one is feeling. It's merely trying to push one's feelings aside. So in awareness, we're willing to grieve. But in terms of indulging in grief, it isn't a matter of holding on to it, wallowing in it, and feeling sorry for ourselves, but of being willing to allow the emotion to become conscious, to respect it, because it is a natural emotional experience. The Buddha pointed to unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, as the first noble truth. And in that context, he referred to old age, sickness and death, grief, sorrow, despair and anguish. Grief, then, is the first noble truth. So it's a question of welcoming it because it is a noble truth and not some kind of personal weakness. Put it into that context of understanding. And understanding the first noble truth, dukkha, is one of the insights. If your reaction to grief is always rejecting and pushing it away, you have no way of understanding it. This loving kindness then is a way of welcoming grief. Sorry. This loving kindness then is a way of welcoming. Grief is something to welcome rather than to reject or ignore. From this still point, whenever you feel a sense of loss or separation from the loved, it is more like noting it is like this. It feels like this. What does it feel like here in the body itself? Do you feel it in the lower part of the body or in the heart maybe? I notice, and this is my own experience, that as I open to people in the present, I usually feel as though the doors that have been closed here in the heart are opening. I used to think I didn't have a heart. People kept talking about heartfelt feelings, and I would think, I don't have any. I was such an up-in-the-head type of person that I was never really aware of what I was feeling. So I put forth effort to be aware on the level of the heart. But there was a strong resistance to it. My rational mind would think, Sounds pretty soppy to me. I didn't want to identify myself with these heartfelt feelings. The tendency to think that such things sound emotional and weak is a criticism, though, isn't it? But when I contemplate it, I find the sense of the doors opening. When I am in this still point, and with somebody directly, I find it very real. With this group here, there is a sense of heart relationship. I can feel a sense of openness this area of the heart, and it's an intuitive feeling. I don't think you could measure it with scientific instruments, but this is the best I can do to describe the experience. I also notice, when I go into a critical mode of reactivity, that it seems as though the doors close again, but I'm back in the old pattern of not feeling anything. So speaking of grief, one of the, um, uh, the instances uh, that uh, Lumpur Sumater would often speak about was... Um, uh, after that interlude with his uh, his father and three weeks of staying staying with them, uh, his father passed away at the age of about ninety, and then um, uh, six months later he was visiting the family in uh, in San Diego. His sister and, and brother-in-law were, were there, and his mother was there, and that uh, he'd spent a little bit of time with them, and then he was going up to Northern, Northern California to teach a ten-day retreat up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, his sister and his mother had come to the airport to, to wave him goodbye and see him off, and he'd flown off from San Diego Airport up to San Francisco. And then um, what had happened was that uh, the mother uh, and <coughs> sister had uh, gone driven home, and then his mother said, you know, I, feel a, I feel a little bit kind of feverish. I think I'm getting a bit of a, a cold or maybe some flu. And um, 
his sister, Virginia, and said, oh, no, I should take you to the hospital. And this doesn't sound good. And she said, oh, don't bother. I'm fine. It's just, a, it's just a bug. But anyway, Virginia took her to the hospital, checked her in. And that night, um, she spent the night in the hospital. She woke up at um, 6 o'clock in the morning. The nurse brought her a cup of tea. She apparently picked up the teacup, took one sip of tea, put it down, coughed, and died. Just like that. Um, and so then... The, the hospital then obviously told uh, Virginia, uh, and then then uh, she didn't know where where Ajahn Sumedha was staying, and uh, so that she called here at Amravati and said that we need to get in touch with uh, with uh, Ajahn Sumedha because our mother just died this morning, and so he needs to he needs to know that this has just suddenly happened. And we were he was with us yesterday, and said we said goodbye. There's no sign that our mother was that ill. And she had had a heart condition for many many years. Suddenly, to just go like that was a was a, a, a big shock. So uh, anyway, the um, uh, we managed to to track him down. He was staying at the house of, a, of some lay friends of ours in San Francisco, but he was about to go up to to teach this meditation retreat in the town of Santa Rosa, about an hour and a half uh, north of San Francisco. And um, but anyway, we, we got the message to him that um, uh, this this house and. Um, uh, Lumpur talked about it himself, uh, and uh, and also the, the fellow who was driving him was a, uh, our f- a friend called uh, Mark Lieberman, Dr. Mark Lieberman, who's a uh, long-standing friend and supporter of the Sangha. He said, uh, so this really hit Lumpur like a, a ton of bricks. Suddenly his mother, who he said goodbye to the day before, that she died, and uh, and he had to go and teach this 10-day retreat. So he said they, um, they drove up from San Francisco all the way to Santa Rosa, and he said, it's very difficult because uh, he wanted to hold my hand, and it's a stick shift car, so it's, it was tr- it was very difficult to 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 drive <laughs> and hold uh, Ajahn Sumedha's hand at the same time, and uh, that's uh, and he said that, that Lumpur described it. He said, "Yeah, I just I was just uh, hit by this wave of, of grief, and so I just wanted to hold Mark's hand, and, uh, and he just sat there in the car crying the whole time. He just wept for an hour and a half driving up to Santa Rosa." And then the retreat that he led, he was uh, he um, said obviously the death of his mother was a very major factor in the mix, and that became a focal point of the teachings he was giving. But it was very much an example of this um, processing, uh, being open to what he was experiencing. He was very close to his mother; she was an incredibly important person in his life, and he had very deep feelings of, of love for her. And so then, with her dying, then suddenly whoom, that was all that the the effects of that were, were washing through him. And uh, then halfway through the retreat, he had to leave the retreat, go down to San Diego, go to her funeral, and then fly back up and finish the retreat. And so it was a very much um, part of the uh, uh, of the, the mixture of, um, of uh, the retreat teachings. And, uh, and he had a lot to say about it, both then on the retreat and then when he came back to England afterwards and was, was talking about that. Uh, because also they uh, they wouldn't let him see the earth being put into the co- into the ground on the coffin they could see that because of I guess a number of lawsuits or people being emotionally damaged by seeing the people shoveling earth onto the top of the coffin that the, the people in the uh, who ran the graveyard where his mother was buried that uh, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't shovel the earth in until he had left. You know, he was sort of 
waiting by the graveside, you know, waiting for them. To, and it's like, and then he realized, oh, nothing's happening. And then he asked, and they said, oh, we ha we have to wait till you leave. And he said, no, I want to I want to be here when she's with the earth being shoveled in. And they said, sorry, sir, you have to leave before we can do this. We can't we can't put the earth in the ground until you're gone. And uh, <laughs> so he eventually had to walk away and uh, let them get on with it when he was not present. But I, America is a very litigious society. People have lawsuits for all kinds of things. So apparently you know, the, the um, emotional impact of seeing somebody close to you being buried, having the earth poured in, was somebody had, uh, had uh, uh, created a lawsuit about that, and so it couldn't be done. They, they had to wait. But uh, that sense of, of grief and trying to process that and then let go of his mother and to, to acknowledge her life and the huge impact that she'd had in their, their life together was something that Lumpur was extremely candid about and, and not afraid of saying, yeah, I cried all the way from San Francisco to Santa Rosa. You know, but, uh, and that a part of his brain said, I'm supposed to be the meditation teacher. I'm supposed to be beyond suffering. <laughs> so tears pouring down his face. But, uh, but then he realized, well, Yes, I am the meditation teacher, and I have been practicing for you know, thirty years or so. But yeah, these tears are running down my face. And my mother's just died, so of course I feel sad. There's no conflict or no um, disparity there, um, and that uh, that was quite a powerful insight for him in, the, in that respect. That um, the uh, the sort of the mental image of the the, you know, the great meditation teacher who is you know, beyond suffering and said, well, it's, yeah, you can be beyond suffering but still be crying for the death of your mother at the same time. Those two are not contradictory. That makes sense. When you're caught in thinking, you don't really feel very much because thinking has no sensitivity. That's why people who think all the time are often very insensitive. They live in a rational world that is quite beautiful in its own way, but there's no feeling in it. Opening to sensitivity is not a matter of trying to tell yourself to be sensitive. It's rather recognizing that the realm you're living in is like this. And this is not an ideal realm. It's not the perfect place. It's not how things should be according to the ideals, what is best, what is fair or just or perfect. In this realm, awareness is not always going to be what you experience. The atrocities, the serial killers, the wars, the unfairness and the tyrannies, as well as the justice, fairness and goodness, they all belong in this realm. No matter how much you try to make life into a Garden of Eden, you embrace along with it the forces of your own destruction and the destruction of the Garden itself, because that's the way it is. It is not, it's, not that it's not that there is anything wrong. What are we supposed to learn from this? Ask yourself. I mean, this is obviously something to learn from, isn't it? If it is my fault, then maybe I should do something about it. Go to a shaman and exorcise the snakes in my mind, maybe. The idea that it is my fault is one way of looking at it. But it isn't. The Buddha pointed to the Dhamma, which includes everything. It's all-inclusive. I find that just by contemplating life in this way, I am suddenly more interested in it. It no longer seems like an endless struggle with everything. When operating on a personal level, from how things should be, it seems that life is always a struggle, 
and I can never win the battle. As much as I try to control things, try to make them good, make myself what I think I should be, there's always this other side that has to be rejected and denied. It inevitably, inevitably keeps pounding in my consciousness, demanding attention, taking it all very personally, and then the sense of uselessness and hopelessness, and even, maybe I shouldn't be here, maybe I don't belong here. In terms of taking refuge in the Dhamma, then, there is this sense of awakening, the buddho, noticing the way it is. The Thais have an acceptance of life that Americans don't have. Pucha was never idealistic in terms of monks being perfect, being always kind and unselfish. In fact, he would find our weaknesses and mistakes and the way we took ourselves seriously very amusing. Then he would get us to look at the absurdity of our expectations, the absurdity of trying to make ourselves into something we could never be. This, I think, was one of Lung Pucha's greatest gifts. So this, um, uh, say, trying to be the way we think we should be, um, is a very common trait, uh, and certainly I, I was subject to that myself. And uh, the other day I was um, talking about how um, when I was f- here uh, at Amravati, um, I, I lived here from 1985 to 1995, and uh, in those first few years I was really uh, trying to hard to be the perfect monk all the time and do everything uh, in, a, in a sort of absolutely 100% perfect monk type way. And then uh, this became uh, a real burdensome struggle. And uh, at the, by the time I got to the end of 1986, beginning of 87, I decided to, to change my change my approach and just um, be a bit more relaxed, a bit more normal, a bit more uh, average, and to, to not try and live from this ideal position, trying to be this perfect thing, like making a perfect model and then sort of squeezing myself into this this mold of what, what the perfect monk should be, but just more function intuitively, as Lumpur was encouraging us every day. <laughs> I actually listened to the advice of the teacher. Incredible. Amazing. <laughs> Only took me seven or eight years, eight or nine years. Anyway, um, one of the, the, the comments that I received at that time, which was, uh, was meant very, in a very friendly way, was one of the other Ajans said to me, you know, you're much more easy to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. And he wasn't trying to be insulting. It was actually a very helpful, friendly comment. And so part of me was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> but it was um, that uh, the sense of, of trying to be this perfect thing. You create an ideal, and then you're trying to squeeze yourself into that. And that, and it was uh, you know making a uh, uh, kind of awkward and... Uh, uh, imbalanced uh, approach to life and just relaxing a bit, being more in tune with the way things are and with how you are and acknowledging your own shortcomings and not trying to be this perfect thing all the time. It didn't mean being lazy or careless or, or um, badly behaved, but just uh, having a, a different uh, different approach. And it was quite striking that that was noticeable from the outside that I was much more easy to live with when I, once I stopped trying to be this this irritatingly perfect monk all the time. So the um, one of the things that, uh, in terms of acceptance and how, when we there are things about ourselves that we don't like and we want to reject them, then we make them stronger. There's a a, a story in the suttas um, where, uh, which is retold quite often, it's in the Sanyutta Nikaya. Um, in the Saka Sangyuta about the 
uh, Saka, the the head of the king of the um, Tavatinsa heaven, and he tells this story of of um, it's a sort of Buddhist fairy tale. But uh, it, it tells a story of one time, uh, Saka, Lord Indra, was uh, away from the Vajjanta palace, his, his um, sort of heavenly palace. He was away off on some business. And then uh, while he was away, this little, uh, kind of, uh, little uh, tiny demon, this sort of imp, came scurrying into the throne room and hopped up onto the, the great uh, Yellowstone throne that uh, was, uh, was Saka's uh, sort of seat of, of power and then all of the deva ministers and helpers say, get off there get off there you know his majesty is going to come back and you'll be really in trouble who do you think you are but they when they got upset and, and angry with uh, this little demon it started getting bigger it started off being kind of uh distorted and ugly and then the more they got angry and upset then it got bigger and bigger and more and more good looking and say, get off there, this is terrible, you know, the Indra is going to come back and he's going to blast you and you know, we, we, you'll get in trouble, we'll get in trouble and, you know, who do you think you are? But this demon didn't say anything, this yaka, and it got bigger and bigger and more and more good looking until it was much bigger than Lord Indra and, and really kind of powerful and handsome. So then at this point, then, then Saka, Lord Indra, returns to the palace and they say, we're terribly sorry, you're terribly sorry, your majesty, you know, this, this, this yaka just came in this this little imp and it kind of clambered up on your throne it won't move won't say anything and, and we don't know what to do and we, we're terribly sorry and this is this is really awful and we, we you know it wasn't our fault <laughs> and so then indra walks in and um doesn't say anything to the 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 deva um staff and the courtiers and, and uh, so forth and goes up and says um well welcome to my palace uh, i i hope that you've been offered some refreshment um uh, it's very nice of you to come and visit us. And as he speaks courteously to this this yaka, this demon, then it starts to shrink. And says, uh, uh, "Has anyone not brought you any kind of refreshment? You know, a glass of nectar, or a cup of tea, or you know, some ambrosia, or you know, some..." Yeah. And then it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And then <clears throat> finally, uh, with uh, Lord Saka being kind of friendly and polite, kind of scoops it up in his hands, takes it out to the door, and kind of. Um, <laughs> pops it outside and then all the rest of the devas are like wow what was that and, he's, and he kind of comes back and sits down on his throne and says you know what that was says, that was an anger eating demon that was an anger eating demon so it was feeding on your anger so the more angry and upset you get the, the, the more powerful and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> impactful it, it would be but then uh, Politeness and kindness is the thing that would disempower it. So that's what that was. So if you want to look up the original story, it's there in the uh, Saka Sangyuta, in the Sangyuta Nikaya. <laughs> the demon keeps getting bigger. Oh yeah, if it's a negotiation, it won't work. Yeah. No, if it, if it's if it's a if there's a um, if there's a weasel, at work. Yeah, it's not if it's not sincere, it doesn't work. It's like I'll love you as long as you leave. Yeah. How marvelous you'll come! I'm so sorry you can't stay very long. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it has to be absolutely sincere. So that it's like, please stay as long as you like. Make yourself at home. What can I give you? And part of you is going, no, 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 <laughs> don't say that, don't say that. <laughs> but if you really mean it, then it has a, uh, a really powerful effect. And that uh, if there's that sense of s- surrender, like Lumpur was saying in that reading yesterday, like, yeah, okay, well, it's going to be here. If it's here for the rest of this lifetime, okay. Next 10,000 lifetimes, okay. What else, what else is there to do? So part of us is going to say, don't say that, don't say that, don't say that. But the heart, on the level of the heart, there's a, there's a, f- a feeling of, yeah, I can bear it. And then that sincerity is what disempowers it. So if you've got a very quick, if you've got a kind of a, a, a law firm operating in there, then it's <laughs> the inner weasels. Not to, not to. Uh, do you know what a weasel is? It's a little kind of furry animal that <laughs> that uh, can go in tight corners, and uh, it's known for being kind of tricky. And uh, uh, so that uh, in, in the way the English use the word weasel is like someone who's kind of sneaky or. It's kind of got some kind of um, tricky uh, uh, agenda that they they want to get, and they want uh, to to pursue. And that, uh, so I'm sure weasels are very beautiful and fine creatures in their own right. But uh, they, the that uh, weaselly mentality is always one who's always kind of sneaking around things or trying to manipulate to maneuver to get things to go your own way. The, there was one of the, the lay people close to Abayagiri Monastery in California. He's uh, He's a very good-hearted and a noble person, but he's extremely adept at kind of maneuvering around things. And uh, and so uh, we were. Uh, <coughs> he's been around very close to the sangha for a long time, and quite a few of the lay people had asked for Pali names. And one day, you know, some uh, we Ajahn Pasna and I asked him. Said, you, "You never asked for a Pali name." He said, "I'm worried you'd call me Weaselo." Because <laughs> Visalo is a is a Pali, it's quite a nice Pali name. Visalo, V I S A L O. I'm worried you call me Visalo. So, so oh, good point. Well done. <laughs> so that's enough for today. Call it, call it to a close.